house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. But this year... Mommy, you talk to her like she's right in front of you. Oh, that's... Well, sometimes... There's someone unexpected at the party. You're okay, Mr. Man. I miss you. Go play with the life, girl! Julia! In your psychology classes, do they have a name for this kind of behavior? Oh, yes. It's... He's nuts. He will be all right. It's just... He really loved her. To Jillian on her 37th birthday. Does Jillian appear to you out there on the beach? Yes, she does. You swim with her? Yes. Does she make it? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast with gator guts and Efron butts. Uh, every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, freelance entertainment writer Chris Vile, and I am here encased in an elaborate sandcastle with my <laughs> co-host, senior writer for Decider.com, Joe Reed. Hello. Hello. How are you, Joe? I'm going to tell you something. This movie is not what I expected this movie to be. I had never seen it before, and I think I was expecting something generally very much different, and we can go into it once we get into the discussion. But just so you know, I was expecting I was something. Not different. expecting what we got. I, I I already can imagine what you were expecting based off of <laughs> things that we will definitely get into. I was right. expecting something better <laughs> because uh, <yeah. laughs> I had seen it like back in the days. I'm pretty sure I saw this for the first time on HBO and I remembered being like, I kind of like that movie. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, but yeah. more importantly, before we get too off topic this week, we've invited another special guest um, over to our episode. Um, everyone, please welcome film and television editor and also co-host of the mixed reviews podcast, which we have been, Joe and I have both been on. We love yes. it. It's Gavin Mevius, everyone. Hello. Hello. Gavin, welcome. welcome. I'm doing that thing I do where I forget that this is not a visual medium, so I'm dancing <laughs> You are waving no to one. us. <laughs> oh, I only record this podcast while dancing. I'm dancing the whole time. <laughs> I'm doing um, that dance from the favorite. It's Joe and I, like, we're doing, like, weird <laughs> bend over. Yes. Right. I'm the Rachel Vice, as always. Yes. Gavin, you are the second person after David Sims to be an alumni of Videology Trivia to show up yeah. on this podcast. So eventually I'll just end up having everybody. But uh, Really, Videology Trivia is the glue that holds us all together. Sorry, kind Chris. of. <laughs> R.I.P. Videology, no. too. Oh, Chris, I'm R. so R. bummed that that place closed before you could come visit and we could like take you there. Because it's a really yeah. cool. It was a really good place. I really loved it's it. It's very special. And I never lived close enough there for it to be, like, convenient for me to go there a lot. But, like, for being a place that was so out of the way to where I lived, I was there way more often than I, you know, than you would have ever expected to be. 
You just had a I always wanted it to be there. my like neighborhood bar. <laughs> what was that, Chris? And you just had a secret tunnel to get you there. God, exactly. if only. <laughs> and that's called the L train, and it's closing down. <laughs> oh well. O- oftentimes, Joe wasn't even there at all. It would just appear to him on the beach at night. It was just like, yeah. <laughs> Way to tie it in. Yeah. So we gave <laughs> Gavin the the choice to select from a list of sort of pre-selected. Right. We gave you like the here's what's yeah easily we available gave a to stream. List. A very long list. Yeah. And you came back with a very interesting. Uh, selection indeed I so I, I don't know if you've mentioned the name of the movie yet but the the name of this film is to Jillian on her 37th birthday and I don't know what it was about seeing it on the list because I hadn't thought about it in in years and I it was I think my second choice I was like yes this this thing this is what I want to do so yeah I, I I don't know what it is about this movie, but it... and I was excited because like we haven't really t- done the Michelle Pfeiffer talk yet, and I feel right, like not. if we're doing a podcast about Oscar ambitions thwarted, I think there's a full <laughs> chapter to be written on Michelle Pfeiffer. Absolutely. Uh, also, like it made especially... me so happy when you picked this, Gavin, because like I'm <laughs> the person who loves doing the like this movie is fully forgotten episode. And, like, a lot of our guest episodes so far have been bigger name movies, which is also wonderful. But, like, these are the episodes that I really kind of like to go in on. I I mean, it's funny because, like, I, you know, the last couple episodes that I've looked at, like, you know, you did The Tourist and you did Alexander. And, like, both great guest episodes. But exactly the episode I thought, I was like, oh, like, these, like, movies are fresh in my memory. But there was something about the idea that... This movie came out in in ninety six. I want to say, yeah, yeah. and the, and I was just like, oh, I have like weird, like young teenage memories of this movie and nothing else. <laughs> like, Do you want to know what spot. movies this movie opened up against? I've got the box office mojo page in front of me. First of oh, all, God. it opened on five screens, what so fully platformed in late October, which like our listeners, God love them, and I do love them do sometimes have a habit on Twitter to be like, whenever we talk about the movie we're talking about next, to be like, that had Oscar buzz? And it's just like, like yes, oh, yes, trust us. But like, if anybody is... There's also different degrees of like, when in the conversation does it have Oscar buzz? Like, when of we course. talked about Hannibal, like, that was so far out, like, when the movie was yes, pre-production. Right. Then there can be like, well, something hits a festival, there can be something that, right. like, these reviews are like... yeah. And to Jillian, I think degrees. a couple of that, like, you know, Pfeiffer was in a stage in her career where she was having, she would sort of always have some degree of Oscar buzz. But also, I think the platform release is a little bit of a clue. So it opened on only five screens, so it only made like $77,000 in its opening weekend. But opened against Sleepers, if you remember Sleepers. (laughs) I do remember Sleepers. super bummer of like friends growing up in Hell's Kitchen and all going to the same juvie facility and getting molested by kevin bacon super fun time. i was gonna say that was that was a that was also a a grand sort of time for kevin bacon <laughs> yeah very true get on the bus opened that weekend if we're trying to place ourselves in space and time swingers opened on eight screens that weekend made just a little bit less than Tajillion did it's a shame john favreau never made another movie <laughs> yeah, it's true. Whatever happened to that guy? And don't know. Don't know. <laughs> the Michael Winterbottom movie Jude with Kate Winslet and Christopher Eccleston. 
Yeah. Oh, I don't remember that at all. I remember yeah. being traumatized that like... by that movie because there's like a childbirth <laughs> shot specifically where there's a lot happening. Um, so yeah. yeah, that was that was during the first wives club sort of era of box office where it was like slowly amassing it's ultimately like 100 million dollar showing anyway i also love that the quite wide a year. expansion weekend for this movie is halloween weekend it's is like it really? it's about a ghost let's open it on halloween for wide audiences can, that's can i tell you a really boring personal story about that too so this movie came out when I was 13 and I was an avid video store renter. And for those of you out there who are too young to remember, we used to have stores that had <laughs> video cassettes along the wall and you could just take them and bring them up to the counter and bring those home. We used to have them. stores that weren't even Blockbuster Video. Like yeah. that was the real game. Oh, oh yeah. Was like Mine was a Mr. Movie. <laughs> oh, we had Video Factory. I had, we had like a place that my family went to that was in like a strip mall and it was not a blockbuster. Oh yeah. And like, they used to hold movies for me because like we would be there every weekend and I was that weird kid that would like talk to the people who work at the video store. And like, if people wanted to rent like Little Shop of Horrors, they would not let them because they knew that I would want it. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so Uh, cute. I love you, Chris. That's adorable. Um, That and I remember Clue, them being like, we, somebody wanted to rent this and we didn't let them. Um, Wait, so Gavin, I want to hear about your sort of Oscar origin story, because I I don't know, this kind of thing interests me. Like, what what got you into, like, the interest of, like, the Academy Awards? And what was the first time you remember sort of noticing that? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't know. I my my family's always been I my my dad like worked in a factory but like on the side was constantly reading and drawing and my mom was a nurse and she was always busy but it always felt like we you know I had two older sisters it always felt like we always took time out for movies and that sounds weird I know but I I guess to take this to a dark place I guess there is you know it's one of the few escapes from a life of quiet desperation <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> and uh and so I I remember just frequently watching my mom's always loved award shows and uh, i just remember frequently watching them growing up you know seeing and they're they always present themselves and obviously as an adult this this shines worn off a little bit but they they present themselves as glamorous and uh i believe it was david sims who said that you know you're seeing all these films that you've never heard of that have these fancy names yes and, and you know i i come from a very small town upstate new york and you know a vast majority of these i would say 75 percent of these movies never came anywhere in, around near where i was from yeah you know so and then you I, would like I, walk I, out of there and just be like oh i need to see like all of these movies i yeah. need to see blue sky i need to see yeah. you know fancy whatever. movie exactly. one two three yeah and, and so and so like the to be able to like you know eventually these films would come to the mr movie and i'd be able to rent them but you know you would see these these celebrities these you know and sometimes oftentimes like new young celebrities that i'd never even heard of um you know getting awards and presenting awards and and i don't know it it definitely was like a like a humble beginning sort of like i want i want to go to there yeah i want to be like them do you have any specific memories of like having a rooting interest any year especially when you uh, were younger I think that I think that maybe one of and this would have this would have put me like smack in my teens, but like I think the year my mom was most invested and therefore like the family was invested was Titanic. Sure, because my mom yeah. wasn't. I as much as I said that 
we would stop to go to movies. My mom wasn't as much of an avid moviegoer. She wouldn't often join us. But if she had something she liked, uh, we would go. And so she saw Titanic, I want to say, like five times in the theaters. Oh, and yeah. I saw it once with her. So that I only got to experience that once. But she was so enwrapped with this with this movie and the spectacle of it. Awesome. And so I really feel like that was the year that, that my mom was like, well, it's gotta, it's gotta win everything. Cause yeah. it's the, it's the best movie. And then it did. <laughs> Titanic is such like, I feel like we are going to get that answer a lot with guests when we have this conversation. Cause Titanic oh, sure. is such a formative movie in and of itself for a lot of people. But then especially for people who love and care about Oscar, like Titanic, at least for like yeah. people of our generation is like the one. Well, and that was a very accessible best picture field anyway, yeah. because I remember that was the first year that I had ever seen a majority of best picture nominees before the Oscars. I had seen four of the five. I didn't see I didn't see the full Monty until like years later, actually. But I saw Titanic and L.A. Confidential and Goodwill Hunting and as good as it gets all before even like the Golden Globes, I want to say. Like, I feel like I was ahead of the game that year for the first time ever. Yeah, you know what? You're right. I also think I had seen a vast majority of them that year because uh, we definitely like my mom also really loved As Good As It Gets. I maybe had already seen The Full Monty because I was starting to come into my, you know, I had friends who really liked film as well. I had neighbors. Right. That, uh, one, of, one of their older brothers was going to film school and he was introducing me to stuff. So... And I feel I like think, The Full I Monty think... was an earlier in the year movie yeah. in release, right? It was like a summer yeah. One of those things where it just like it sneaks into theaters and it Slowly develops word of mouth. Of yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Gavin, what yeah. like how do you engage with the Oscars like these days? Like cuz I assume you've probably oh. seen more of the movies that like get nominated now by the time of the Oscar ceremony. Like how obs- are you an obsessive like us? Like tell our listeners. <laughs> I I, it's like six of one, half dozen of the other. I guess like I like to play the curmudgeon and be like, ugh, awards for art. I don't care. And then at the same time, I keep track of every single movie I see in a year and I rank them, which is an insane thing to do. Um, so what are you talking I, about? That is what? the most normal thing to do. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, I literally, I I obsessively write everything down, and um, so yes, I <laughs> I. But I like I like to be like oh poo, uh, poo the Oscars who cares like uh, but I watch them every year and I pay attention to the race and I watch the nominations and so like I don't know I I guess it's like leftover like teenage slackerness that wants to be like oh, I'm too cool for this but really you know yeah I keep it in the back of my mind it is so yeah I I mean keep... I guess I am a bit of an obsessive yeah. It's important to keep a healthy perspective on the Oscars, I feel like, but I think it's also, I think it's it's something that everybody has decided they need to have an opinion on. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's very much a it the, the extremes to either end of tend to tend to get under my skin. The not having any perspective on it and right. placing all of your sort of faith and credulity in it, and I'm just like, no, be smarter about it. And then the other <laughs> end of being like, this doesn't matter. It's you know. It's commerce and it's anti-art and it's whatever. It's just like that also gets under my skin. So like, oh, the, absolutely. The that I you know why doesn't everybody have the exact same forty-five percent as I do? Of like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, just I don't know. I I think there's also something to say about the fact that it's sort of changed the way 
and I don't know if everybody else agrees with this, but I feel like the Oscars themselves have sort of changed the way that every other um, award season thing happens around it because you you end up with things like people talk about SAG, but a, like 60% of that conversation is like, yes. SAG's a predictor for what's going to be nominated at the Oscars. Or like you look at the Independent Spirit Awards and, you know, three to four out of the five nominations are Oscar films. And it's it becomes it's become so overwhelming in the conversation that I think it's hard to deny its place in in culture now. The Oscars are like the singular that singularity in Interstellar where you can't see <laughs> the star as a circle. Like it's it sort of like distorts at the middle because yeah. it changes it, you know, it draws everything into itself. So everything, yes. nothing can be seen as what it is. It can only be seen through the gravity of of the Oscars. Yeah, I think. Well, that's right. I will not say anything more brilliant than that. So it's been a pleasure, fellas. <laughs> thank you for having me on. End of episode. We didn't even get <laughs> yeah, to the movie. Thank you. That was um, great. <laughs> my defense, what I will always defend, is that the Oscars also create, especially because like we don't people bemoan that more mainstream movies used to like make it into the Oscars. And that's because like widely we used to watch very different movies than we watch now, but the Oscars create an infrastructure to get, like we just talked about with Gavin, like not every movie goes to everybody in the country. It's an accessibility type of thing. But like when you get to that level, these movies become more available and it's like, it gets people curious in different movies that they maybe wouldn't have even had the opportunity to be exposed to. Um, Right. And that well, will always be my Well, they get studios to throw some money to, movie, to movies they wouldn't normally throw some money to. Right. In right. terms of promotion, in terms of distribution, things like that. And, and this is a much longer conversation that I'm not going to get in here, but that's, I, f- I feel sort of gross about the conversation that's happening around Roma and the, the way in which people are viewing it and, and like the way people are like, you have to see it in a theater. And it's, you know what? Not everybody has that option. I'm very lucky. I live in New York city. Right. I'm very lucky. It's playing a bunch of theaters, but like, I, I know a lot of people who do not have, and, and honestly, I, you know, watch a movie, how you want to watch a movie. I I'm will not say be David Lynch screaming at you. And I've been as skeptical as anybody about the idea that people were going to watch Roma in their living rooms and were they going to be able to pay attention to it and were they going to be able to see it for, you know, everything it is. I will say watching the movie a second time on my computer screen to review it, I ended up liking it more than I did when I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival on a big, beautiful screen at the Princess of Wales Theatre, which is not to say that the presentation on the computer screen was better, but it also is to say that, like, it's not impossible to get a lot out of this movie. And, you know, it's not impossible to get everything you want to get out of this movie by watching it on a smaller screen. Right. Like, it's it translates better than maybe people are giving it credit for. Yeah. It's probably an intimacy anyway. thing, especially, like... Sure. Yeah, that's and I and I feel bad for sidetracking the conversation, but yeah, that's no, it's, it's been I don't know Fo- following it on social media has been has made me feel a little gross because it does feel a, like a little classist, a little like has it made well, you, you a... need to you need to run out and see it the way I think you should see it, and it's like okay, are you I'm a Netflix guy now? Are you are you a Ted Sarandos? Yeah, I, I, I actually the medium. Um, I was recently hired by Netflix to, make, <laughs> so, to go on various podcasts to talk about yeah. how people should be watching it anyway yeah. they can. I, which, which explains why I had to rent this movie on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, 
it, like I, Joe cut this out if you if it's boring I am happy to see how Netflix even outside of like putting the movie in theaters how Netflix is actually like finally promoting one of their fucking movies rather than yeah, just letting absolutely. things die like it's a and it's as simple as like because anytime that a new Netflix original movie that like of some like larger like big significance that it, whether it's a big name or something you always see people saying I had to actually look for it and search for it and Netflix yeah. didn't put it in my algorithm but like it's as simple as Netflix like when you open your Netflix and you have like the different profiles and it's a shot from Roma like so yeah, it automatically right. has people thinking about watching this movie like my, my beef with them is always promotional that they don't put they don't put the effort behind their movies to get people to even watch it. They just throw it on their platform. Always my problem. Absolutely. And, and I think this is all due to having a filmmaker with the kind of clout and muscle that Quaron does have. Yeah. And I think the more that you see Netflix working with these A-list directors, and they're going to have it next year with Scorsese, and Scorsese is going to be, you know, just as strong-arming, if not more, than Quaron. They're going to have to acquiesce to these directors, and that means more. I think it ultimately means better promotion for these movies, which ultimately is a good thing. I think, and I think hopefully then it trickles down to. I always talk about Private Life because, like, Private yep. Life is such a phenomenal movie, and I think Netflix, unfortunately, that was one that did kind of slip through the cracks, and it's really too bad yeah. because. Yeah, they. I I genuinely don't even think I saw a subway ad for no. private life and no. you at least you, living in new york city you at least see those and yeah. that's you know anyway chris do we want to swing it on back to Julia? yeah we're we're going to pivot to a very different beach um we are going to <laughs> as we mentioned this week we're talking about to jillian on her 37th birthday it's a 1996 adaptation of michael brady's play about brie about grief and uh white people on beaches yeah um, yes <laughs> the film stars the uh the very whitest people um the film stars peter gallagher as a writer named david um he's visited by his dead wife jillian played by michelle pfeiffer who um He's still in love with her two years after she's dead, and it's like the celebration weekend of her birthday. We won't get too into it because we are still going to do a 60-second plot description, um, but the film has like kind of an interesting cast for people who like actresses like us here on this podcast right yeah. now. Um, you have Claire Danes as his daughter Rachel and Kathy Baker in just the widest brim uh, beach hat. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah. You, there's uh, Freddie Prince Jr. There's yes. lots of waves and like karaoke negotiations. His screen debut, I guess. Yeah. So, Gavin, would you yes. like to give us a 60 second plot description? Uh, sure. I th- I I wor- I didn't write anything down for this. I worry it might be a little rambly, and I'm also worried that I'm gonna leave some stuff out because, in all honesty, there's a bunch of stuff that happens in this movie that's not important so what you're saying is you'll fit right in with every time i've done a 60 second plot description (laughs) excellent are you ready i am ready okay your 60 seconds starts now uh david lewis who is played by a beautiful pair of eyebrows known as peter gallagher uh loses his wife in a boating accident when she stupidly climbs to the top of a sail and the boat rocks and she falls into the water Two years later, he is still in his Nantucket summer home in Massachusetts, living, uh, waiting to celebrate her birthday. 
He's invited her sister, Esther Wheeler, played by Kathy Baker, and her husband, Paul Bruce Altman, who's a total lecherous weirdo, uh, to stay with him. And they've brought his daughter, who's been staying with them, back to Nantucket. Uh, Unfortunately, he may be possibly mentally ill, and he sneaks out at night to visit his dead wife, who he sees on the beach. Kathy Baker wants to take his daughter away. Oh, I should mention his daughter's played by Claire Danes, post uh, My So-Called Life. And uh, so essentially, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer keeps coming to him on the beach. He keeps living with her and not experiencing life outside. And And it causes all sorts of drama. Okay, so... (laughs) That is so much quicker than I ever expected to be. (laughs) It dawns on me, though, that there really isn't a ton of actual plot to this movie. No, there isn't. The setup... (laughs) The setup is the plot. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, it's one good idea <laughs> and everything else just happens around that. I wonder if the play is a little bit more, because like this is a 90 minute movie. So unless it's a yeah. one act, you imagine that there's a little bit more like flesh on the thing on the stage. I wonder if the movie is maybe a little bit more concerned with like talking about grief or like, you know, the family I mean, it, dynamics within like grief right. or like the mentally what? ill factor of it, or if there's a little bit more magical realism going on because this feels like just the skeleton of a thing. Right. This is a movie that takes half steps in a lot of different directions, but never really fully goes there. We're like, the, there's a whole character who is brought along by Kathy Baker and Bruce Altman to like set, they want to set her up. Uh, with Peter Gallagher. She's played by Re- Wendy Crewson, who is one of those, like, generic sort of faces, but, like, she's been in... I want to say she was on a season of 24. She's, like... Yeah, the Santa she's Claus. in a bunch of TV. Yeah, right. In a, in a fun, very 90s play twist, her name is Kevin. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> that's a very much, like, oh, this is a play. The other thing These where you know it's a play... liberals on a beach. Yeah, you also know it's a play because somebody has a relationship with their sister-in-law. Like, that's one of those yeah. things that, like, only <laughs> plays deal with family dynamics to that level. Like, movies are like, are they married? Are they father and son or mother and daughter? Then we don't care about it are otherwise. They friends? But, like, so, so yeah. the things that I know about the play, by the way, because I do know just a tiny bit about the play. It was written in 84, um, and it played off-Broadway, and then it was moved to Circle in the Square. Um, and... To my knowledge, the sister-in-law, who for some reason they made an architect in the movie who just goes to psychology seminars, <laughs> is a psychologist in the play. So weird. And I thought that was such a weird change that they were just like, oh, she's like new agey instead of actually it being her profession. I think they um, maybe just wanted to take a little bit of credibility away from her. Yeah. And, um, and the other thing is that it all takes place on just the back deck of the, of the house. Of the, the back port. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. And it just sort of keeps, like, you know, passing through. Yeah. So my takeaway from this movie in general is, with the exception of the Claire Danes character, who are these awful people? Like, I kept being <laughs> like... awful is correct. I just wanted to claw my arm off to get away from, like... And I guess the Wendy, Wendy Cruson character, Kevin... Um, also was fine, but like also like, it's just like Wendy... she doesn't really do much and she doesn't really like right. she's just in an awful situation and you feel bad for her because they like Yeah, like why is she there? They didn't tell I... her that this man's wife was that this was the two the 
anniversary of her death and her birthday and that he didn't know she was coming. Like, and right that until he she got on the literally that chasing that a ghost. Okay, so <laughs> I think the probably more interesting or better version of this is either fully centered on Rachel and her experience with all of this going on around yeah. her. Rachel's the daughter. Yeah. Rachel the daughter played by Claire Danes, which I mean, maybe in like the third act of the movie, it does that a little bit because she starts like flirting with uh, Freddie Prince Jr. and getting drunk at a party. She also has this like horrible friend who is there the oh whole time. Oh my God. Okay. We need to talk about Cindy for a good 20 minutes because yeah, holy but, shit. Real, real quick. I, I want to bring it back to Kevin real quick. I, Kevin only seems acceptable because she's underwritten. Well, and, and I yes, was going to say, yes. Like, and center it on Kevin, who, like, we right. can actually discover who this woman is. And, like, what is your response to being in this, like, totally uncomfortable situation? Right. Like, and and Cindy only seems awful because she's a character who shouldn't even be there and is incredibly overrated. She's such yeah. a 90s character, too. She's such yeah. a, like, post-Amy Fisher's America character. Yes! Where it's oh, like, my God. So true. We're just like America was like was fascinated anew with the concept of the Lolita. And this this woman, this girl is played by a 28 year old woman at the very least. I'm positive. Like there is no way. And she's supposed to be playing like a high school going into her junior year, which is they mentioned because right. She's the same age as. Claire Danes' character, right? Absolutely, yeah. So they're going into their junior year, so she's supposed to be 16 years old. She looks double that age, at minimum. And she's, so she, like... she was around 24 she, at the time. She doesn't, yeah. like, even... It's not even that she looks older than a teenager, because we're so used to that. Um, but it's, like, she doesn't even, like... She's just, like, mean in a way that, like, adults who are, like, haggard and have had horrible life experiences are yes. just, like, tough, mean, awful people to each other. Also, you it took me half the movie to realize that she, to sort of figure out how long she's known these people for, that she's been, like, she's the neighbor on Nantucket. So she's she knows Peter Gallagher and Claire Danes pretty well, right. but I don't think she's... She's met, like, Bruce Altman and Kathy Baker, like, once or twice before, and yet they have all of these sort of, like, old sort of, like, mean, you know, uh, Dorothy Parker jokes about each other. Not, like, as well written, but just sort of, like, old mean lady jokes about each other, about just cutting each other down. And I'm just like, what is the familiarity here? Yeah, you guys like each other? Right. Okay. So, so hate each, and, is there a grudge? What's happening? Joe, you And the weird thing about that too is there's an implication that she has been spending time with Peter Gallagher while Claire Danes and her aunt and uncle were off the right. island back at, right. like because there's that opening scene where he's uh David Peter Gallagher has also become this sort of like daredevil Recluse. post his wife's death. He's sort of taken on his wife's personality. Um and so he's like driving crazy down the road and she has this line where she's like i've had to deal with this all summer and it's like why yeah where where are your parents (laughs) right right where are her parents where indeed that character makes fully no sense but we keep mentioning like how like this feels emblematic of the 90s and maybe that just happened in the adaptation process but i find it very unsurprising that this yeah. is a play from the 80s made yes. in the 90s because it feels yeah. very much like one of those play adaptations where it's like it got the movie treatment because like this play must have been like very popular in like regional theaters and like yeah. produced ad nauseum for a decade and like i kept thinking a lot about like 80s influences watching this movie because 
The Blay would have come out, I think, the year after The Big Chill. And I kept kind of watching this movie yeah. like it was shitty Big Chill, even though I don't love The Big Chill. No, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We can talk about that at another time. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. Um, it just, it's a frustrating... Here's the, the other thing about this movie is that, and I know it was written before Ghost, but I think a lot of the movie was, if not marketed specifically on It's Like Ghost, but a lot of people made those, you know, connected That's those That's what dots. I thought you were bringing up at the beginning of the episode. And a lot of the reviews made that comparison too negatively yes. to Ghost. So maybe it was promoted that way, but that is fully bonkers to me. I don't understand... Like, it is, except I feel like I can understand an audience who goes into this movie and wishes that it had gone more in that direction. Like, I think this movie needs to go either closer to Ghost or farther away. We're, like, keeping yeah. the Jillian character as this sort of, like, plausible plausible delusion, but plausible sort of supernatural apparition, right? You're suppo- the audience is supposed to never quite know. If this is Which is just... funny because it does a terrible job doing that, it, except for one scene where, like, and uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get too spoilery, but there's a there's a scene in the third act that's supposed to make you believe, oh, maybe there is something supernatural going on here. But it's the only time because literally the first time you see Michelle Pfeiffer fully in the movie, she undercuts herself by saying, like, I'm a figment of your imagination. Right. Right. And I feel like if it was a little bit more plausible that she was, that this was really happening, there would have been a little bit more, you know, not to like be corny, but like a little bit more magic to the movie. Mm -hmm, And I also feel like you could invest more in the Pfeiffer performance, because the other thing about this movie is you're 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 showing up, you're buying a ticket for Michelle Pfeiffer. She was all over the marketing. Her name is in the title. Her character's name is in the title. Like the the very, very little of Michelle Pfeiffer we get in this movie is bound to piss an audience off. It's like such a bait and switch that they pay for Michelle Pfeiffer and no disrespect to either Peter Gallagher or Kathy Baker, who I think are both great actors. And I don't know if they're great in this movie, but they have moments in this movie that I really yeah. like. Yeah. Um. But like you pay, you're paying for Michelle Pfeiffer and you're not getting her. And I don't know. It sucks. <laughs> it was, it was a big year for Pfeiffer too. Cause this is also the up close and personal year and one fine day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so she was kind of around a lot, but I think I think what also was kind of interesting is because we haven't even talked about the the you know picket fences elephant in the room yet, but like the the script was adapted by David E. Kelly. Yes. It was directed by a frequent collaborator uh, with him, Michael Pressman, um, and you know at the time she was with David E. Kelly. Um, they'd been set up on a blind date and they fell in love. And so she, you know, she'd already guest starred on Picket Fences at this point. Were they, they were already um, married by this point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And so like Kathy Baker's from Picket Fences and right. really it just feels like they, they just, this was something that they did with their summer vacation. Yeah. Picket Fences had just ended its run that spring in 96. And then this, yeah. ca- this comes out in October um, Kathy Baker actually had won three Emmy Awards for her role on Picket Fences, which like people I don't remember that, that like she was she was a huge Emmy favorite. She actually the bit of trivia that I love about Kathy Baker, well not love, but whatever. Um she <laughs> won her last two Emmys. She beat out Angela Lansbury on Angela Lansbury's last two chances to get an Emmy for Murder She Wrote, because famously Angela Lansbury lost every time she was nominated for Murder She Wrote. And every year 
it would be like, is this her year? She was very much the Susan Lucci of the primetime Emmys. And uh, fun trivia about that year specifically, so- somehow, uh, Kathy Baker's brakes were cut in her car after that. And they saw Angela Lansbury leaving the scene, but you know, luckily no one was hurt. Luckily, I'm just yes. yeah. I I only know picket fences as like an entity that exists and has a lot of prestige around it. Um, but I think it I is interesting it. to position this as like one of those things where. Oscar buzz probably comes because it's associated tangentially to a television show that gets like right. Emmy awards. But can we think of yeah. times that that's actually translated to nominations and wins? <laughs> so David sure. E. Kelly has only written four movies, four feature films. One of which was this thing called from the hip in 1987, the star Judd Nelson. And we can sort of, you know, that's an early, early career, you know, making your bones, whatever. But he did the screenplay for this. He did the screenplay for Mystery Alaska, if you remember that movie about the hockey team. And then that same year, 1999, he did the screenplay for Lake Placid. Yes. Yeah. Which is really kind of funny. And then otherwise, it's just a bajillion television series, each one quirkier (laughs) than the last. Like, that's his whole thing. Yeah. Is these sort of... And sometimes they're very watchable. I always thought... That, like, Ally McBeal was a very watchable show. The Practice is a super watchable legal drama. I was going to say, anything that's involved in that that universe of, like, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Boston Legal, Boston Public, that (laughs) is all... Yeah, I watched all of those shows growing up. They would drive TV critics crazy because TV critics would always want to sort of... I think invest in them a little bit more than maybe the shows demanded. The other thing about David E. Kelly was he spent some time doing L.A. Law for like the later years of LA law and like turned LA law into a quirkier sort of place to be. And so he always had some prestige oomph to him and like picket fences was like a really great successful Emmy series. So like the prestige was behind that too, but he was, his stuff was always a little bit goofier, junkier. Like it was harder to be like, this is television. These were critics who were like, waiting for Mad Men to come along, just, like, dying for yeah. Mad Men to come along. Right. And, like, up up until then, it was David E. Kelly being, like, you know, Jane Krakowski created, invented a face bra on Ally McBeal. Like, that's very, that's a very David E. Kelly kind of a thing. Which is why it's funny that when he came on to write um, Big Little Lies... I think there was a collective cringe of like, what's David E. Kelly going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Big little lies. And ultimately it came out like the wonderful, perfect thing that I think it, it ended up being. But I think there was definitely a sort of a hesitation that, you know, they wanted to wait and see, but yeah. I think one, uh, like if I can put a bow on like the television conversation, my takeaway maybe for this movie, because we've talked about how it's like, you're just like half stepping into all of these like potentials to like have some plot. This to Jillian feels like a pilot that wasn't picked up to series. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good. And I think part of that is besides the script, which I do think it contains a multitude of problems. I will say Michael Pressman's direction is really flat and boring. Yes. And the movie looks like it was shot using the Drag Race season one filter. Like every everything is diffused <laughs> everything's and hazy. blown out. Like there's not a wrinkle on anyone's face because nothing's in focus. Yeah. And I, I watched the HD rental of this. So I'm not saying like, you know, like I pirated a shitty copy or something. 
something. I, I literally paid $4 to see this movie in the best pre- presentation possible uh, on TV. And I was still like, what? Why Why did they shoot it this way? Um. So let's talk a little bit about the ensemble of this movie. And by that, I mean the multiple facial piercings that Freddie Prince Jr. has. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they got their own title card. I think the Aries <laughs> constellation is visible uh, if you connect On them all face. together. So, yeah. yes. I mean, it's so funny that this is like, once again, this is so indicative of the 90s. But uh, you know, the story I started earlier, by the way, the the like finding this in a video store when I was 13, I would I would like basically just rent um, rated R horror movies because I could. And so I saw this movie and I was like, like mixed it in. I was like, well, this movie's got a ghost in it. Maybe <laughs> they'll just think, you know, I'm, I'm watching some horror movie. And I remember being a 13-year-old and the first time you see Freddie Prince Jr. And now watching it, I'm like, ugh, that hair. Ah. Like, what was I thinking? But I, this was the first time I'd seen it. I was like, that's so pretty. <laughs> this, is, this was my feeling when, um, God, this is so embarrassing. When Skeet Ulrich shows up in As Good As It Gets. Yes, exactly. As the like street trade come like draw me like one of your Harlem girls. I don't know. There's there's a whole <laughs> thing. But especially it's just like, oh, and you see his butt and then like, yes, granted, then they beat the shit out of like Greg Kinnear in a horrible hate crime and it's brutal and terrible. <laughs> but I'm like, but Skeet Ulrich is so pretty though. <laughs> and now I'm just like, oh my God. But but yeah, like I, I don't know. So you you're introduced to Freddie Prince Jr.'s character basically in the first scene and then he disappears for the entire for the rest of the first and second act essentially yeah um and uh but he's he's just like a person another vacationer on the island who um uh, peter gallagher believes has wronged him by cutting him off and and he yeah. eventually ends up dating claire danes and it you know he it's gets a bit of a spoiler a as you watch clean. that early scene because he gets out and it's Freddie Prince Jr. and you're just like, ah, we'll see him again. And so yeah. I, I would imagine watching it, watching the movie without knowing who Freddie Prince Jr. is, it's maybe a little bit right. of a surprise when he shows up again. I kind of wish we yeah, didn't absolutely. because how wild would it be if like that car <laughs> scene is the only time you see Freddie Prince Jr. and he looks yeah. like that. And he looks like that. But so, but let me tell you, when Claire Danes is sitting in the back of the car and she just keeps looking back at him, I was like, I feel you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> And so this would have been the year before I Know What You Did Last Summer, right? Which was yes, the movie that, yeah. that sort of launched him to whatever degree that Freddie Prinze Jr. was launched. <laughs> to his successful career in the WWE? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he's a writer. He's been a writer. Or is he still a writer for WWE? I don't he think was so. I think while. they parted ways what? with him. And I don't... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Talk, like in the, yeah. in the annals of like unlikely careers. Yes. Yep. Vanna White uh, sells um, and yarn last... and Freddie Prince Jr. is a writer for WWE. Those are my two things. I think the last big thing he did was he was a voice on uh, Star Wars Rebels. Okay. Um, and you yeah, know what, though? That's... Let's hand it to unlikely, not unlikely, but like Hollywood marriages that last longer than Hollywood yeah. marriages do. He and Sarah Michelle Gellar have been together for like. And you know what? 20 years. I'm rooting for them. Yes. I'm rooting... Absolutely. Good for them. Um, it's funny because she then was also on Star Wars Rebels, and I was like, this is adorable that they're, that they're, yeah. they're like, getting each other Family work affair. Too and... Yeah. Yeah. The other male ensemble member that we didn't talk about that we should talk about because it brings up some big old problems with this movie is Bruce Altman as, like, Kathy yeah. Baker's husband slash, like, kind of 
uh, David's friend. Like, it's like he mentions he prefer- at some point that he's his best friend. Yeah. Best yeah. friend, exactly. And I was like, what? Ha- what is in this movie that has led us to believe that these two would ever speak to each other oh, outside? Oh, there's of this something. Film? They are both lecherous over like young women on the beach that's and just true. like staring oh, at their ass. Scene. And oh wait, it's his daughter. In in <laughs> yeah. In in all honesty. And and I feel the same way about the Kevin character. I feel the same way about the Cindy character. If you were to remove Bruce Altman's character Paul Wheeler from the movie, would would the move would the core of the movie be different? And I feel like no, because the main thing is David's obsession with his dead wife Jillian, how it's affecting his do- his relationship with his daughter Rachel, and how his sister in law. Uh, Esther wants to take her away. That's that's literally the only important thing that happens in the movie. So there's these side characters just feel and I under I understand how drama works. I understand how yeah. scripting works and you need to fill these things out, but they genuinely it it goes back to the thing you were saying about it feeling like a television pilot. They feel like they exist only to add more story down the line that we're never going to see. Yeah. I would I would argue maybe that I think this is if you're if you're workshopping this as a play or as a even you know as an adaptation of a play into a movie, I think a lot of your your concern is balancing the audience's sympathies between Kathy Baker's character and Peter Gallagher's character because the crux of the like the actual point of conflict is that Kathy Baker ultimately is going to try to go to court to get custody right. of the Claire Danes character, the daughter. Uh, away from Peter Gallagher because he's a danger to himself and her and he's mentally unbalanced and whatever. And so I think if you are workshopping this, you're like, okay, we've got to make sure that the audience doesn't go too far in one direction or another, that we have to keep her sort of plausibly, you know, plausibly sympathetic enough that the audience doesn't turn on her. Um, But, you know, and then with him as well. And I think maybe that husband character for her is like a little bit of temperature control. Where yeah. he's he's not he doesn't treat her well, but he also is a check on her. Right. Do you know what I mean? Where like if she starts going too far in one way, he'll sort of like point that out to her. But he's also not good to her, so it gives her a little bit more sympathy. The 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 most embarrassing moment for them is supposed to be the most cathartic moment for them at the end of the film where they really finally have a discussion about the relationship. And he essentially says I don't love you, but I need you. Yes. And we're as an audience, we're supposed to be like, oh, cool. Like, yeah. they're such a good couple. Yeah. Bruce Altman's one of those character actors. He's such a, hey, is, hey it's that guy. But he's, yeah. he's like a, hey, it's that guy as the, like, the family lawyer or your disapproving <laughs> accountant or a network executive or some sort of functionary. Although the one role I will never, ever forget him in is did you ever see the Paul Walker movie Running Scared? No. Absolutely. Where Paul Walker not. plays this like <laughs> Boston uh I think he's a cop. I think he's like a off-duty cop or whatever. Or maybe no, maybe he's not. No, he's not a cop. He's a he's a like he's a runner for a for a mob organization. Six of one half and doesn't know the other, right? So um and he runs afoul of whoever and um it's either his no, it's not his kid. Cameron Bright plays this like kid that like is in trouble and Paul <laughs> Walker has to like help him or something. Vera Farmiga plays his wife. The point is it becomes this like 
weird, dark, like black light odyssey through the the you know the naked city at night or whatever. It's like it's it's very much insane. Like the movie gets progressively insane. It's the Russian mob. They're looking for this kid because he like knows something. He saw something. He saw somebody get killed, and they've got to like track him down, right? So ultimately, this kid gets uh, picked up by this idyllic couple played by Bruce Altman and uh, from Lost, um, Elizabeth Mitchell, right? Yeah. So they're this, like, picture-perfect, like, way too picture-perfect, very smiley. They're, like, very out of place with everything else in the movie. And they take him home to their to their place, and their place is beautiful and has, like, a playroom. And they keep talking about how he can, like, play with their other children. And it turns out that they're a couple of child molesters who keep children locked away in their house like they're the fucking witch in the gingerbread house in, in some sort of fairy tale. But <laughs> this, the story is very much, like... How is Everybody should movie? see this movie, first of all. It's fucking insane. But that is why, that is the one role from Bruce Altman that I'm like, oh yeah, that's your one role where you don't play like an accountant. Is you're this like, child really, really like highly stylized child kidnapper. It's awful and wonderful. Wow. Anyway. anyway Bruce Altman, everybody. Bruce Altman. Bruce Altman. Okay, so. Well, I mean, he, he's not playing a, a desperately different character in this movie. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, there's uh, all right. Can we? So somebody, somebody, walk me through that scene with him and Cindy because yeah. So so essentially, you know, his Bruce Altman's character Paul Wheeler's subplot is he's in this unhappy marriage with Kathy Baker. Um, basically, it seems to stem from the fact that they don't really have sex anymore, and he's always putting her down. And because of that, he's become this really gross lecher. Like openly, every openly. other phrase out of his mouth is just sexualizing these young women, yes. and it's cre- creepy as fuck. And somebody should put him in his place. But and so you have this this friend Cindy who's there, and she's once again, as you mentioned, twenty eight, and she's wearing push-up bras and thong bikinis um and she's like oh yeah like we're gonna we're gonna get all the boys as practice for men and so they have this very tit-for-tat relationship and finally mm-hmm. at towards the end of the film uh she sees him sitting alone um on the on the the back porch where the play takes place right and and it's basically like Oh, the thing about old men like you is you never make your move. Do you want to kiss me? And he and he doesn't do anything. And she's like, "See, you never make your move." And walks away. And it's weird because as an audience member, you don't know how to feel at that moment because I genuinely don't want him to kiss her. Right. But also like, what's her deal? Like, what, what indeed? What? But this is also another one of those like pre like not to bring like me too into everything because that's obnoxious that like people try and like graft that onto, but like in this sort of era of Hollywood where men were writing all of these movies <laughs> where it's just like, you know, the thing about 17 year old girls is they won't tro- stop trying to sleep with you. Like they won't Shoot, leave you alone. Yeah. They just parade in front of you and they're always trying to sleep with you. And what is a man to do? And that is what that reminded me of was just sort of like, isn't it so funny that he finds his daughter hot? Ugh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus H. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, I everyone. don't I don't understand. It's it's a wholly unnecessary plot line and I guess part of it is is to illustrate the fact that that um, you know, 
Claire Danes' character Rachel is growing up and she's really blossoming into a, a woman, even though she's, you know, supposed to be in her late teens. It's not like she, you know, it's not like she's in the early throes of puberty or anything. Right. Um, which is also weird because she keeps referring to her dad as daddy and, and her, her dad mom as mommy. mommy. Yes, I just and I, I, Yeah, and I found that very strange because I was like, are they supposed to be younger, but they're not? Uh, but... I think there's a million and one other ways to illustrate this without moving into light pedophilia. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's, I think that's where the movie really screws things up or part of the ways it screws things up where, cause I genuinely felt very uncomfortable. And I, I was telling Chris, I, I think I blocked, you know, the character, Paul Wheeler, Bruce Altman's character from my brain. Yeah. Cause I remember liking this movie as a kid, but I don't remember him at all he and cindy were the two characters where i was just like oh this is not what the movie i thought i was going to get at all i thought if this movie was going to be bad it was going to be bad in a kind of like milk toast too like not enough conflict too sort of like gauzy too sort of you know (laughs) whatever Well, you got that too it's it it is what's happening elsewhere (laughs) right so i want to talk about michelle pfeiffer a little bit more just because i feel like if this movie had oscar buzz like there is the david e kelly picket fences whatever thing but i think mostly it's michelle pfeiffer's in this movie in the kind of a role that if you look at it on paper you Mm -hmm. would think oh that's a supporting actress nomination that she could get because it's this movie star playing a secondary role, but also the role that like everybody loves this woman. Everybody misses this woman. She's like the story sort of like puts a halo on her and puts a highlight on her. And so she was like a huge box office draw that year. And she was also coming off dangerous minds, which I can't wait until we someday talk about dangerous minds. Right. So (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer up until this point, she had gotten three Oscar nominations in five years from, Dangerous Liaisons in 88, Fabulous Baker Boys in 89, which was the year she won the Golden Globe. And a lot of people thought she was on her way to winning an Oscar. Ultimately, Jessica Tandy, looking back, like Jessica Tandy winning that Oscar is not a surprise. Like that is, no, it's your best picture winner. She's the lead. She's like the good story. She's the, you know, she's the plucky old lady, that kind of thing. Um, But so... Pfeiffer wins the Globe in 89 for Fabulous Baker Boys, then Love Field in 92, and Love Field is her last Oscar nomination, which seems crazy because she's such a, she was such an omnipresent movie star throughout all of the 90s, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so after Love Field, she, she's movies that she could have been maybe Oscar nominated for, but didn't. Age of Innocence in 1993, Scorsese movie, gets the Golden Globe nomination, doesn't get an Oscar nomination. What I find funny is like her Mike Nichols movie. Mike Nichols has direct has directed countless people, countless actors and actresses to Oscar nominations, right? And her Mike Nichols movie is Wolf. So yeah. it's like mm, better right. luck next time. Yeah. Um <laughs> Dangerous Minds in 95, which is a huge box office uh movie but is not well respected enough to be an awards play. Up Close and Personal in 96, which I think was another one that probably had a lot of people thinking Oscars with her and Robert Redford, like screenplay by Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. Like there's a whole, there's a book that he wrote that John Gregory Dunn oh, wrote yeah. about writing the script for that movie. That's really interesting. And I can't remember the title of it right now, but uh, we'll maybe put it in the notes in the Tumblr. Cause it's, it's really interesting. I mean, 
we we did Robert Redford on uh, the mixed reviews, and I mostly left out up up close and personal because that was another movie that I remember people loving when I was a kid, and then I watched it and I was like, "This is garbage." Um, I will tell but, you uh, what people mostly loved about it was the Celine Dion song. Yeah, yes, absolutely. That is why um, people so love easy that to movie. graph that. Written by our fave Diane Warren. Diane Warren, I know. But the the most famous quote about the writing of that movie was when they were going back and forth about what the movie was actually about and everything. Finally, um, the I, I suddenly can't remember Joan Didion's husband, who John Gregory Dunn. You, yeah, yeah, John Gregory Dunn apparently just finally screamed at an executive like, "What is this movie supposed to be about?" Right, because and the executive just yelled back, "It's about two movie stars falling in love." Exactly. Yes. yes. Because they wanted to write the Jessica Savage movie. They wanted to write right. a movie about a uh, TV anchor who sort of, like, gets broken down by the system. And that is not the movie that the movie studios wanted to make. So anyway, then after that, she's in she's the lead in I Am Sam, which is really interesting because Sean Penn's the one who gets the Oscar nomination from that. Dakota Fanning is the one who gets the, like, career boost from that, and also, I think, a SAG nomination from that. So, like, Pfeiffer is sort of the forgotten cast member in that movie. She's, like, She's the best performance in it. Yeah? I've never seen it. I will say, I've never seen it. 2002, White Oleander, which gets a SAG nomination for her and kind of nothing else, and we will 1 million percent do an episode on White Oleander one of these days, because I cannot (laughs) wait to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and then it's like she goes into kind of semi-retirement. She's in Cherie in 2009, which, again, Stephen Frears has done wonders for actresses and getting them Oscar nominations. And, like, that didn't go for her. She's in, I mean, she was in some movies between that, but, like, she's in Mother last year, which is a role that very well could have been Oscar caliber. I think ultimately she's not in that movie enough to have gotten enough momentum, but like plus she's that whole great. narrative, she's yes, well yes, that plus movie. everything else about people being mad at mother, but like she's so good <laughs> in it. She is, she absolutely is. So she's like, what are what are what do we think about Pfeiffer? Do we feel like she's got another sort of push in her to get to that Oscar platform, and or in in retrospect, what was her best shot that didn't happen? You know, it's a it's a tricky situation, and I don't want to talk too much out of school. But I I saw her big uh, indie move this this past year. I actually saw it a, a, more than a year ago, which was uh, Where's Kira, mm-hmm. and I loved it. And I thought she's really great in it too. Um, but I had heard rumblings, and I, I don't want to name names, but apparently she and the director did not get along, and there was a lot of talk. It was once again, it was her very first. This is a late career, very first independent film. And she was supposedly upset about not having a trailer and everything. And it really colored my picture of her because I've loved her. I mean, since Batman returns and, and so I don't, I don't know. In all honesty, I will say, I don't know if she has another shot because I think if she did, it would be an indie films. And I feel like she's soured herself on that. Yeah. Yeah. The only movies on her IMDb upcoming right now are Avengers Endgame and Maleficent 2. So it doesn't feel like she's going the indie way. Yeah. The 2000s for her have been mostly genre centered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, maybe some of that's a paycheck. Maybe some of that is just what's being offered to her. But and, then and she'll do, do a movie like People Like Us, which yeah. is 
awful. That's the movie where she's <laughs> she's yeah, Chris Pine's movie. mother. Elizabeth Banks is really good in that movie. Elizabeth Banks is good. That's the movie. The only reason I ever think about that movie was the one uh, Hollywood Reporter actress roundtable where Hilary Swank goes on and on and on about this role that That she she wanted to get and she didn't get. And she says, it's the best role I've ever read on paper, blah, blah, blah. And And naturally, Helena Bonham Carter is like, oh, Amy, didn't you get that job? Amy got offered it and turned it down. And Amy Adams is like sinking into her chair and she's like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that movie. <laughs> and Helena's like, that's very interesting. Yes. Hello. Oh God. It's such a good, uh, such a good moment. When I do if my there great, is anybody who should be perennially, even when she does not have a movie on those best actress round tables, it should be Helena Bonham Carter because Absolutely. she stirs the shit. Absolutely. <laughs> So um, yeah, I I think I I think I kind of agree with you, Gavin, on Pfeiffer. I feel like it's mostly I wish it had happened previously. I wish it had yeah. happened for you know Dangerous Liaisons. If you look at like the Dangerous Liaisons is an interesting one because she's nominated in supporting in '88, but she had also been Golden Globe nominated that year in lead for Married to the Mob, and that is mm-hmm. a movie that I'm pretty sure Dean Stockwell got an Oscar nomination for that. That is a movie that. Right. Go, sort of runs up to the doorstep of Oscars problems recognizing comedy. And I think if the Oscars right. had been better about recognizing comedy, she maybe gets a lead nomination. Because 88's a very gettable year. Like, Jodie Foster wins for The Accused. But that's a year where, like, I wonder if that could have been Sigourney Weaver's year. She was nominated for Gorillas in the Mist. I wonder if that could have been... With Working you know, Girl, too. And that's the one where I always look for Glenn Close, where, like... Dangerous Liaisons was that year. Glenn Close nominated. Maybe that could have been Glenn Close's win. And then so that you look at, like, no reason why Pfeiffer couldn't have been. Because, like, that was a huge year for her. That was a breakthrough year for her. And Married to the Mob succeeds on force of, I mean, it's a good movie in general. But I think that succeeds on the force of her personality, right? Right. So I wonder, I genuinely wonder. If her, well, I mean, the closest to a nomination that didn't happen because you posed that question, I'm sure White Oleander is there, but I wonder about Batman Returns. Is that just like a thing that we think of now? Because didn't she get some nomination for that movie? If Batman Returns happens now, yes. I think there was yeah. never, a, never a thought to that happening in 1992. Hmm. I just think it was a different world. I think it was a different academy. It was a different Hollywood. They were not looking for costumed superheroes on that level. They just weren't. Right. That's fair. And 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 not to sidetrack us too much. I I will say I do feel like, and I'm sure everybody wants to hear a conversation about sexism from a, a white man. <laughs> but the uh, I I think she has definitely experienced a a large amount of sexism, especially in the 2000s. Because I remember when Stardust came out, everybody acted like, you know, oh my God, she still looks great. Where has she been and everything? And it's like, the fact that we're having this conversation about the fact that she still looks great should tell you where she's been. She's been not getting roles because people have decided she's too old. Right. She got... I think it was during Mother. It it was semi-recently. Maybe it was Wizard of Lies that there was some like sexist question posed at her at this like Q and a that like went everywhere on the timeline that day. I do kind of remember that that now that you mention it. Yeah. I keep thinking she has like three or four line readings in mother that like are so (laughs) 
funny to me or like the things that that character won't let go of like the, the thing about like yeah. needing to wash her clothes in the in the washer and dryer is just like uh, it's we'll save my, it for the eventual mother episode that our listeners keep begging for um that we definitely <laughs> want to do um yeah, but well, she, it, it, we she's my favorite that. part of that movie and i think she makes a lot of brilliant choices like not even not even necessarily script mandated choices but character choices in that film that i i don't know i yeah she, oh when i saw mother i, I mean, was like that's why i love damn. that performance because it's a performance only michelle pfeiffer can give like yeah, it is 100%. definitive michelle pfeiffer i would put that in like top five michelle pfeiffer performance you haven't done pfeiffer for mixed reviews have you no we haven't so she maybe would be a great one and one of you guys want to come on Maleficent we'll have you anytime ah I like I would love it. I would I, I would, would absolutely say that love right it. now. And it would give me an excuse to watch some, you know, I'm there are definitely some. I've still well, we could do oh, we could also do a thousand acres for this podcast and I kind of want to <laughs> at some point cuz a thousand acres is a very interesting movie. Yeah. But like I've never seen Frankie and Johnny. I would love to see that. I saw it years ago. Yeah. It's a, certainly a movie. I would have to <laughs> I would definitely want to track down Love Field, which is like fully a sure. movie that has an Oscar nomination and is like very like hard to get your hands on. I have yeah. found in Who the past. Who directed that movie? Anybody? I don't know. No, Jonathan. Ka- oh, written by Don Bruce though, which is interesting. Who uh, fascinating went on to do uh, Happy Endings and oh, yeah. Boys on the yeah. Side and The Opposite of Sex. I love the opposite of sex. I haven't seen it in years. It probably doesn't hold up, but man, did I watch that a lot as a teen. Uh, absolutely. I was yeah. really for, obsessed for with Maggie reasons. Gyllenhaal singing in Happy Endings. She does like a Billy Joel song. Maggie Gyllenhaal singing and Jesse Bradford wearing underwear for like half of that movie are the reasons oh. to see Happy Endings. <laughs> Although I remember like, I remember liking it. I remember Lisa Kudrow being real good. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. While we're on the actress train, do we want to talk about Claire Danes a little bit? This is like sure, Claire I mean, Danes. She, the only award she gives the best performance in the movie. Yeah. I agree. Um, this is also post um, my so-called life, which she won a Golden Globe for, got an Emmy nomination for. She the only awards that this movie got was she got a Young Artist Award for Best Supporting Actress. This is also came out two weeks before Romeo plus Juliet happened, uh, which like what talk about if year I, today's her. Academy, if she wouldn't be in major consideration for best actress, that performance yeah. is frigging great. It's still a very stylized movie. And I think it's still stylized in kind of a trashy way, which I love. <laughs> but I wonder if there still might have been a little bit of resistance, but I think you're right about the performances and that like being 16, the the year that Romeo plus Juliet happened, sorry, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Um, people got oh, good. so I was ma- wondering who wrote it. People got moment. so yeah, was... <laughs> mad at that title because people were like, yeah, we know who wrote it. And it's just like, no, it's a thing. <laughs> Well, I think also in the context of, like, the trashiness of that movie, like, calling yes. it William Shakespeare's Romeo yes. plus Juliet is yes. so precise Absolutely. and funny and smart. You know, you guys keep saying the trashiness of it, but I refuse to believe Paul Sorvino would sign up for anything <laughs> trashy. So. There is a scene where he is fully just, like, wine drunk and in a toga. Oh, yeah. And, like, it's so good. But, like, it, it's literally that's all that's playing in my head right there's now. There's definitely 16. listeners that are, like, pissed at us for calling this movie trashy, but, like, it that's the point that it's trashy. Of course yeah, it is. This that's is 100% from the era the of, of, of course like, it is. 
You it's a Shakespeare dare. adaptation that turns the swords into guns. Like it's right. It's set on Venice Beach. Yes. Like guys, it's trashy. Yes. I was just thinking about this movie the other day because um, uh, this had Oscar Buzz's favorite movie of nineteen of twenty eighteen, Dumplin. I was writing about that the other day, and I was writing about um, Harold Perrineau in that movie, who plays a drag queen alongside Ginger Minj from RuPaul's Drag Race. Reason to see Dumplin alone is those scenes. <laughs> and I was writing about how this is the first time he's played a drag queen in a movie since William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, because Mercutio is essentially this sort of like weekend drag party girl, right? right. And yeah. so much about that movie is great. But like, I just want to impress that like, at age 16, the year that both Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio became everybody's romantic ideal was <laughs> quite something. It was really, yeah. really. And I am like, so I'm still closeted. So I have to pretend that I'm in love <laughs> with Claire Danes in this movie, which I still kind of am because being yeah, gay does say, not preclude like, you yeah. from being in love with Claire Danes. Like, that's not like at all a thing. But, like, I'm fully... The sexuality is a spectrum that runs from Leonardo DiCaprio to Claire Danes. <laughs> I believe that's the Kinsey. But he and, is And somewhere so... you fall into Paul Rudd in the middle. And that's exactly... Paul Rudd is such a goofy dork in that movie, too. It's great. He's so perfect. <laughs> but, like, Leonardo DiCaprio, for as much as everybody flipped out for him in Titanic, I was very much a Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet guy. Yeah. Like, he's so fucking gorgeous and Baz Luhrmann photographs like James Cameron photographs him in Titanic as a sort of cog in the machine of whatever like you know yeah James I Cameron mean, has very, his objective Cameron's too. always sort of workman like in turn I mean I know people love him because he's you know does all takes all these risks but I'll be honest if I had to be like oh James Cameron stylish director I don't think that's ever what you know well and certainly he's not a director for his like for all the great things that he is. He's not a director who like will lovingly photograph the face of his like yeah. movie star leading man. Whereas like right. Baz Luhrmann knew what he had in this boy and like was just like, let's wait for like the little like delicate bead of water to drip off of the ends of his like hair in front of his face. It's just like everything is so lovely <laughs> yeah it's it's almost like baz lerman shot it as though he were bruce altman's character in Julian on 37th <laughs> thank you for bringing that around thank you for it's like shaking me out of my reverie and reminding me what movie i think is about. interesting in terms of talking about like we talked about like television prestige which is where it feels like a lot of hers belongs and she has some in the theater but like as a film star She's never really had, like, the role to, like, happen with Oscar, but it still feels like it could be potential. Like, the closest she probably ever got was maybe, like, I don't know, Stage Beauty? That that yeah. that couple of years Shop where it was, Girl? like, Stage Beauty and Shop Girl for her were, yeah. like, I think they were trying to make it happen. I think Stage Beauty is a really good movie. I think that's more of a Billy Crudup movie than anything else. Yeah. yeah. Shop Girl, I think, is a dreadful movie that is so oh, really? I've never seen unpleasant. It. It, it's if it makes you feel any better and I, I also like Shop Girl but also it's one of the rare instances where I think a um 
no no never mind i'm gonna take this back cut this out never mind because i actually do like the book better yeah okay because the movie does this weird thing where she because she's so depressive but she randomly stops taking her medication because she's in a relationship with steve martin and in the in in the novella it's that her medication stops working which is something that happens often with people who are on heavy medication for depression and so it feels real and in the movie they decided later they're just like oh she's in love with steve martin so she stops taking her medication it's like nope no 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 yeah. Sorry, cut that out. No, uh, that, <laughs> we like, talk, that's interesting. We've talked about the hours a lot, and we will continue to talk about the hours. That will be on our deathbed. We'll be talking about the so hours. So long as I'm like, breathing, <laughs> we'll be talking about the the hours. Yeah, the hour. She gets so little credit for the hours, and like you Absolutely. can see why. But like, I think she helps that movie function in a way that is interesting. Like, <laughs> interesting slash boring because like she <laughs> is just like a person. Like, a level-headed person who comes into the movie and is, like, fully just, like, on her feet, whereas everybody else is falling apart and, like, she gets no credit for her steadiness. The way she says to, to Meryl Streep, um, you have to be able to see that Lewis Waters is weird. I bumped into Lewis Waters. Oh, you did? Where? In the street. They're all here, aren't they? All the ghosts, all the ghosts are assembling for the party. He's so weird. Oh, what? You can't see that? You can't see that Lewis Waters is weird? I can see that he's sad. Well, all your friends are sad. But I just love that she walks in and she's just like, your friends are sad and weird. And I don't know why you hang out with them. And then they I have that wonderful conversation. Person, Mom. Yeah. Then they have that wonderful conversation about Wellfleet and, and the beginning of happiness. And it's great. Did you know that Claire Danes has no credits on her IMDb past Homeland? Yeah. yeah but that's weird. I, I was just I was just going to say the unfortunate thing about her being on Homeland, which is a show I watched for a couple years and then was like i don't i don't like this yeah, um, same. It, the uh, is that it's robbed us of more claire dane's film roles because you know she she from 2008 to 2013 she doesn't really make a big screen movie right she does as cool as i am in 2013 and then from 2013 to 2017 she doesn't make any movies she does brigsby bear in Which 2017 and there's a queer movie that came out this past year called a kid like Jake, but like it was, it kind of came and went. It's weird to right. me that IMDb always floats television to like the year that it ends rather than yeah. the year it begins. Cause that yeah. explains the Homeland thing. But Is even Homeland still, still, her credits are running? very thin. It's, yeah. it's very, it's very much like a Zoe Deschanel situation where like Zoe Deschanel was another one who got her TV show and then just stopped being in movies. And like, that's well, Claire Dance also does theater too. Yeah, that's true. To be fair. To be fair. But Claire Danes does definitely feel like with the right role and probably after Homeland ends, it yeah. would definitely yeah. happen. So I hope so. We could talk about why Tujillian didn't get Oscar nominations, but I feel like if you look at both its Rotten Tomato score and its box office tally, those questions kind of answer themselves. Exactly. I, I will say this. I, I didn't enjoy rewatching it, <laughs> but... 14% on Rotten Tomatoes it's is surprising. cruel. Yeah. It's yeah. Surprising. Especially, like, that makes you wonder if, like, 
because Rotten Tomatoes lets you basically post your reviews whenever. Like, so, yeah. like, if I wanted to, as a Rotten Tomatoes-approved critic, like, review to Jillian on her 37th birthday right now, like, write something somewhere and then post it to Rotten Tomatoes, it affects the score. So I have to wonder if it would have been better at the time. Maybe. Yeah. Because it did. I don't remember that movie being, like, a a reviled movie. I think it was just generally dismissed. And I also yeah. feel I, like... I will say... Some of the critiques of it at the time were actually k- kind of funny. Uh, Emmanuel Levy of Variety described it as uh, having looking like a calculated lifetime telepic. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said it's not easy for the story's tear-jerking potential to be realized when its characters express their pain as though they were writing greeting cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the Washington Post said, for all the moonlight and magic, the film scares up little in the way of enchantment. You know, so it's, it is, yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. it wasn't popular. <laughs> but yeah. but I don't think I re- I don't remember like by the end of that year being like what were the biggest you know bombs of the year like nobody really talked about it in that sense. If you right. also look at it in the context of what did go over well with Oscar that year, this is like a movie year of like big sweeping emotions with the English patient, like really yeah. thoughtfully considered things like. Fargo and Secrets and Lies and you have like right. popular Jerry Maguire which of course like was a big emotional movie you have Shine which I still haven't seen even since we talked about it in our <laughs> Courage Under Fire episode but like how could like the closest thing that like did well with Oscar or like was close to an Oscar that's maybe like lighter fare is The Mirror Has Two Faces yes right. like this is a and... year that Emily Watson gets nominated for Breaking the Waves which is like Yes, that that yeah. This was yeah. the only year That's that Von Trier could have gotten an ask acting nomination, and I think if you look at the mirror has two faces, com- like relative to what I imagine the expectations for that movie were, because it's Streisand's first directorial effort since The Prince of Tides, which was a Best Picture nominee, although famously not a Best Director nominee, um, and to only get essentially the old Hollywood like makeup award or makeup nomination, not award for Lauren Bacall, you know, which had, which had its momentum of its own, that nomination because she had never been nominated before. And there was the whole thing. And I think that was its only other nomination besides song. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it wasn't even uh, an original score comedy and, and, or a, or a screenplay nominee, right? No. So like that, Ultimately, that movie is, you know, a disappointment as well. I think we've talked about this before, that, like, 96 was one of those years where the big studio Oscar fair flopped. The Crucible, even though that got a Joan Allen nomination, flopped. Everyone Says I Love You flopped. Um, Mirror Has Two Faces flopped. And so you had the door open for all these indie contenders. So you're right. Tajillion with its, you know, luminous Hollywood star and Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't really going to ultimately cut it anyway. Yeah. I look at that year though. And uh, one of the supporting actress nominees that year was Barbara Hershey for portrait of a lady. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm still stuck on the mirror has two faces, which like could have been the title to that movie, honestly. Um, (laughs) But I, I I think about, you know, Pfeiffer, maybe Pfeiffer is not old enough to have been that role at that point, but like Pfeiffer as that kind of a character in a movie like, yes. In a movie like the portrait of a lady or like um, in 
the House of Mirth, like her as like the Laura Linney role in the House of Mirth, like that's the kind of role I really am just like dying to see Pfeiffer in is like movies that will let her mix it up with other actresses. And I don't think she's been able to do that enough, although she has in the past, but like more. Even I mean, even when she has, you know, we um, when we did Whoopi Goldberg, we I watched Deep End of the Ocean. Yeah, Um, that's another one we got to do for this show, for this podcast. Yeah. And I mean, the most she has in terms of interaction with other women in that movie is just Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, she doesn't she just doesn't really get that opportunity to have those. Like, again, like a thousand acres was the opportunity. And like that movie was so poorly received and i don't even know what that movie is i really i really need it's a king lear uh it's based on a novel Mm -hmm. but the novel was essentially a spin on king lear where it's pfeiffer and jessica lang and jennifer jason lee are the sisters oh goodness and to jason robards right yes it's jason robards is the father and he's dying and they are essentially like dividing up the estate and then like secrets emerge and it was a very 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 popular novel and so the the film adaptation was kind of um hugely anticipated and it was you know a lot of oscar buzz and it was directed by jocelyn morehouse who oh, yeah. Yeah. um directed how to make an american how quilt. to make an american mm-hmm. quilt and then uh famously the dressmaker a few years ago with Kate oh, Winslet. That yeah fucking movie <laughs> yeah so there's a I lot wanna, to i just want to step on croquet balls and watch it all burn <laughs> is it croquet <laughs> that is uh all right so we'll maybe do we'll maybe do the uh the jocelyn morehouse double and we'll do the dressmaker in a thousand acres <laughs> I gotta. I definitely have to have one of you guys on for for Michelle Pfeiffer. For I'll, I'll let you guys fight it out. Okay, we'll fight. Yeah, that would be good. I will win. We'll do a thumb war or something. I will okay. throw him that like epic, hateful glance from Mother at him. <laughs> if I can just bring up Mother one more moment yes. to put the button on Michelle Pfeiffer, what we like hope for her for the future. Mother, in one of the many surprises of that movie, just made me realize I want more Michelle Pfeiffer, but I just want to see her play boozy assholes. <laughs> yeah. Like how That'll perfect. That'll do it. You're, you're right. She should absolutely star in a biopic about me. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> should we get into the IMDb game? Let's. Sure. Okay, so listeners, the IMDb game, we end our episodes with this every week, challenging each other and our guests to name the top four titles that IMDb lists that celebrities are most known for. Um, We get two wrong guesses and then we start giving years. If that doesn't help us, we kind of just end up in a free for all of like giving hints and clues. Um, Caveats being, we will say if there is voiceover work or if there's television work so that it like is much more easier and we try to avoid the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we try to avoid Harry Potter because those go to the top and that's boring. (laughs) Well, then there's basically just no guesses. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like Richard Griffiths. Four different (laughs) Harry Potters. So, how are we doing this, JoJo? You had our setup for us. Who's challenging who? Alright, I am going to challenge Gavin. Gavin will challenge you and then you will challenge me. So, Gavin, we will give you the choice to Give first or guess first? I'll guess first. And I, I do, and I told this before we began, but I want to give the audience a caveat. I am 
awful at this game. <laughs> I am genuinely. I have no idea what other people watch. I think you're going to be good at from this. these actors. I think you're so. going to be good at this. So, okay. all right. So, I am going to give to you, Gavin. So, we mentioned a little bit earlier that David E. Kelly, who wrote this uh, the adaptation for this movie, also wrote the adaptation for. Big Little Lies, and one of the stars of that, I that we one of the few stars of that miniseries, although now it's I guess a series. Grumble, grumble, that we haven't done for IMDb games. Surprisingly enough, is Laura Dern. So, oh, oh, why don't you try and guess the four IMDb movies for Laura Dern? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I think the obvious would have to be Jurassic Park. Correct. Yeah, because that's got to be the one that everybody's seen the most of. And, um, goodness. Uh, if I, if I had to pick a Lynch, it'd be Blue Velvet. Correct. Okay. Now the other two. <laughs> I, I got half so yeah, far. That's you got, good. you're off to a very good start. Um... I'm trying to think what else. I feel like she has been underappreciated for a long time until the last like last like what six seven years you where people are, are really like yeah. Laura Dern, Laura Dern. Yes, but I I feel like it's got to be something. Oh, you might say during know. that interim time she was wandering the wilderness. Oh oh shoot! What is that? Um the. Uh, with with her Big Little Lies co-star. Um, see, this is why I'm bad at this because I'm frequently <laughs> forgetting names, and I I, I suddenly uh, yeah I feel like Moraka on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, where I'm just gonna talk through my process. The wilderness. The wilderness. Um. Wilderness. Uh, wild. Yes. Wild. Yes. Yes. Well done. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's in our four. If I can give you another hint, Gavin. You are only going to go for a Lynch. Oh well, that I mean, it's it then it's it's definitely not going to be um, uh, the Inland Empire. I know it it can't be Inland Empire, so it's got to be Wild at Heart. Then it yes! is Wild at Heart, <laughs> Wild and Wild at Heart, and you've got him. Say... I went. I'm. I pulled up her page when you mentioned her name, Joe, to see if I could maybe offer hints. And like, Laura Dern, I think would be legitimately hard. Though, yeah. like, these are the four that maybe I would have guessed. Like, or, like those would have been my first. I guesses. mean, I required help. I'm not gonna. <laughs> my process like tends to be the big box office ones, and then her Oscar, uh, uh, an actor's Oscar nomination. So I would have gotten to Wild from that, and. Okay. I think Wild at Heart would have been tough, but I think once I got the year, I would have probably gotten Wild at Heart. The one I'm surprised that's not there. I mean, I think it's surprising that Big Little Lies is not on there, but usually, like, more recent stuff doesn't show up yet. Yeah. The one I'm surprised isn't there, just because of, like, what I'm sure the traffic was like for this movie on IMDb is Fault in Our Stars. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Also, I, that there is I've no TV at it, all so is wouldn't... interesting because you mentioned Big Little Lies, but also Enlightened, which she is the star of, and Twin Peaks. See, I would have expected Enlightened, and I'll be honest. And I know it got canceled after two, but like, I I think I would have. That was where my brain kept going, but yeah. I didn't say it. 
And also like The Last Jedi. I might have been tricked oh, yeah. into guessing oh, yeah. The Last Jedi also. But well, well General done. Pew, Gavin. pew, Holdo. Yeah. All right. So now you will give clue. You will give to uh, to Chris. Okay. And uh, do do I have a like? Is there anybody that you've done that's in this movie that you were were you perhaps want me to avoid? Uh, um. That's in this movie. Yeah. I don't because I I you know why don't I just say it? Chris I I would really love to to see if you could do Peter Gallagher Peter Gallagher I mean, he's the star okay yeah. Peter Gallagher um while you were sleeping wonderful movie <laughs> it is it's not in the four though wow Ooh, crazy Ooh, IMDb like sometimes the algorithm really pisses me off there's um, also there's, there's one that I mean I I don't even know how to hint it towards you and so one of these is I television feel like this is Chris. Mean. There's a television one? Okay. Um, television, I may not. And I'm going to have a harder time with that. Uh, American Beauty? Yes. Okay, American Beauty's in there. Um, Peter Gallagher. Peter Gallagher. See, like, this is the thing where I, like, I was going to bring up, why is Peter Gallagher never really, like, he feels like the type of person who could very easily get a supporting actor nomination with the right role, right. but it's like, I, they all... Yeah blur together I, I will admit as as an actor peter gallagher has probably had to recite the shakespearean line all the world's a stage and we are merely players i genuinely want to know how many people have gone up to peter gallagher and said fuck me your majesty <laughs> um a sex lies in videotape he's in a, yeah that showed up for someone else yeah, but it's not. It's not on the fourth. This is hard. This is cruel. I feel like this. I don't even know how to give you. So Joe mentioned the TV show. He played the patriarch on this TV show. Hmm. I know this one, and I I never watched this show. So I feel like it was a big deal that he was the. Yeah, the he. It was a very popular show, and and be, even though it wasn't about the adults necessarily, primarily, he was a very popular character on the show. Yeah. So it was like a teen show. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, for many, for a for oh, sort of a half a generation, it was the, the OC teen show. Yes. Yes. I never watched Correct. it either, but yeah. yeah, yeah, he was on that. Um, okay. How many wrong answers did I have? I had two wrong answers yet. Probably. Yes, you have. So yeah, you get years. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. So the years that you're missing are ninety two and ninety seven. Sorry, Gavin. I'm just gonna help you out a little bit here. No, no. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the years don't matter for Peter Gallagher. <laughs> um, These are both tough. One of them is a very well-known movie that I had forgotten that he's in. And yes. one of them is a movie that I don't know if you've... I doubt you've seen and maybe you you had barely heard about. Although they did do an episode of Blank Check about this movie. Oh. I wonder but why. not as part of a series. Oh. <laughs> He, you know, the, I, because I want to give him hints about that one because I, it was a, a vehicle for a comedian. Um, yes. Is that, is that okay. too vague of a hint? Is that too good of it? I, I mean, in the nineties. Um, yes. In, yeah. in 97. Hey. Who, who like eventually had Oscar buzz around him for more. You've, you've done one of his movies for your show. Okay. A comedian trying to think of who those were we haven't done a jim carrey yet no Is it older, bill murray yes it's a yes. bill murray movie okay because we did hyde park on hudson yes um 
low-key one of my favorite episodes by the way this movie was like <laughs> not super popular i feel like i think it was sort I, of an under the radar movie and it's not going to be like groundhog day not no groundhog definitely day. not not groundhog day i definitely but know it is what this movie era. is i just don't know what the answer is um 90s bill murray the title is a play on another um better movie <laughs> on, on a movie that a director made twice Yes. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good oh. hint. Who's the original director? Alfred Hitchcock. The man who knew who knew too little. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So the other one wow. that you're missing. How is that on anyone's IMDb page? I know. I don't even think that's on Bill, Bill Murray's IMDb page. Bill Murray doesn't remember making that movie. Peter Gallagher yeah. doesn't remember making that movie. Yes, the other movie that, that movie. you're missing is on a lot of people's IMDb as themselves, but this, but yes. Gallagher plays an actual character. Okay. Is this like, the one this that is... I forget that he's in, or would it be Man Who Knew Too Little because I fully don't know how he was in that movie? Yeah, you, you've you forgotten that he's, uh, you've probably forgotten that he's in this movie. I don't know. I've only seen this movie the one time. It is a lone director oh, really? nominee. It's, it's so good. It really is. Is this the 92 or the 97? This is the 92. Lone director nominee in 92. This director was a lone director nominee two years in a row. Robert Altman. Yeah. Yep. Is he in Shortcuts? No, that doesn't happen. Nope. No. It's the Wrong player. One. He is in Shortcuts, though, isn't he? That's also the movie that has people billed as themselves. Yes. Wow, the player is the one you were looking Tim for. Tim Robbins' penis. <laughs> he is also in Shortcuts, though, but that is not on his IMDb. Wow. This, yeah. I think this is the most authentically weird IMDb known for that we've had. Yeah. I genuinely, I agree with that. Well done, Gavin. Oh, I thank you. I wasn't setting out to make it difficult, but I, I genuinely thought it, his would be easier. Right. Like, <laughs> while you were, Justice for a while, you were sleeping on oh, all absolutely. fronts in every Justice for burlesque, frankly. Oh, yeah. He's in burlesque. How did I not get not justice for burlesque, air rights for yeah. burlesque. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, also, Joseph. center stage. There's a lot of movies that could have showed up there instead of the man who knew too little. Damn. Crazy. What the hell? Yeah. Um. I, sometimes I wonder if it's a billing thing because, like, what does he build yeah. in Man Who Knew Too Little? If he's like, I mean, second he's the build, second build. Yep, that so would make like... sense. I he's second build. Don't remember him even being in the movie. Um. That I I wonder sometimes if that has something to do with it. He's I mean he's Bill Murray's brother. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but to my knowledge, it's like it's like a spy caper. Bill Murray gets mixed up with his brother, who's played by Peter Gallagher, which like explained to me the genetics there. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> also, is there a connection between him and Tim Robbins? I'm not knowing about because he's also in Bob Roberts and the Hudsucker Proxy. Wow. Um, little known fact: uh, Susan Sarandon and Peter Gallagher are the same person. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, just back and forth. It's crazy. Excellent. That's also Emmy trivia. If anybody, oh, wants. that's good. I'm just yeah. full of it. <laughs> so Joseph, yes, I have a challenge for you. Okay, this is a little bit of a troll to our listeners who want oh, us boy. to do a mother episode. If we haven't talked enough about mother because we've done our first Pfeiffer, spelled P A. P-F-I-R-S-T, first Pfeiffer. Um, your IMDb challenge is her husband in Mother. Ugh. He's simply billed as man, Ed Harris. 
Ed Harris, who famously loses a rib in that movie because he's Adam. Um, <laughs> the biblical Adam. Okay, the problem with Ed Harris. Wait, what? Mm, Sorry. <laughs> you, you, you do tend to give me well-known actors who have been in 7,000 movies. Um, all right, Ed Harris, Apollo 13. Yes. Okay. The Truman Show. Yes. Okay. It's not that oh, difficult. Well, yeah. Oscar nominees. Um, but I don't think Pollock is one of them, so I'm not going to guess Pollock. Um, the bros okay. that hoard over IMDb aren't hitting up Pollock? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like there's like, a, there's like a blockbuster that I could be guessing, and I'm not quite there. All right. Um, I mean, there's... There's a failed blockbuster. <laughs> oh, okay. That also is that's that's a very possible one. Um Huh. The firm? No. Okay. One more wrong guess and I will one give you One more wrong years. guess and then I'll get a year. Um Ed Harris and none of its TV, not even a TV movie. Nope. Nope. Okay. All right. Um is he in the right stuff? I don't know, so I won't take that as a guess. Eh, I feel like he is, answer. but it's not. But it's not four. one of them. All right, that's a wrong guess. Okay, well then your yeah, years um, are 2008 and 1989. 1989, Ed Harris. <laughs> that's interesting. Ed, I still have Harris. Uh, <laughs> what would he have been in 89? And then 2008? Yes. 2008 is the definitely failed a movie that we could do on this podcast, but I genuinely, authentically do not want to watch this movie. This oh is a boy. genre that I like despise in its true form and in oh, its like, adoptive form. Is it Appaloosa? It is Appaloosa. For fuck's <laughs> sake, why is Appaloosa one of his four IMTV movies? I'm telling you all of the, like, Everybody's dad who has watched this probably on TNT or like Spike is like going and like flying onto Appaloosa. So fuck off. That wasn't the failed blockbuster. So the failed blockbuster has to be eighty nine. Yes. And Hudson Hawk wasn't till ninety one. What's a this is an Oscar winning failed blockbuster. Oscar winning, and the thing it won its Oscar for is the thing that it's like most famous for. Oh, it's for. the abyss. It's the abyss. It's the abyss. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Not too bad. The abyss. Back in the days when you could get away with having a poster that was like just literally the name of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of James Cameron. Yeah. Speaking of James Cameron, it's all cyclical here. Good IMDb round game, guys. Yes. Game round. Yeah. Well okay. done, everybody. Well done, Gavin. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm happy to have come out of that not looking like a complete idiot. You did very so, well, Gavin. You did. I really you did arguably better than the rest of us. Yeah. Also, genuinely, thank you for coming on and talking to us, talking to us about this movie. It was very good and fun time. It's it's just really funny. I I do for some reason have I still even after rewatching it and being like, "Woof, this is not my thing." Uh, I feel like I still hold a weird special place in my heart. <laughs> Good. It, so you should. We yeah. should. We should all have. We don't. They don't always have to make sense. The movies that we yeah uh, hold a exactly. Candle for. 
my my nostalgia for Jillian is, I guess, very much like Peter Gallagher's character. I'm still in love with the idea of Jillian. You will wander onto the beach at night and watch this movie. <laughs> it will just play in front of your eyes. Only the better part. Sand blown oh, linens. Yeah. <laughs> sand blown linens. Yeah, that's it. And also, that's our episode. Movies that take place. I know this was on Nantucket, but like Cape Cod, the Cape Cod vibe in general. I am. A yeah, we never that. mentioned yeah. that this was a private island. Oh right. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's funny that the 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 boating accident that occurs that kills Jillian was shot in California and everything else was shot on location and I, it's like so noticeable that it was mentioned in the reviews at the time in multiple reviews at the time. Yeah, yeah no one ever looks like, that warm out on a boat in Cape. It God. makes you wonder if it's like a studio note like we have to see her die otherwise we don't know that she's dead. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. Happy birthday, she Jillian! Happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> Happy birthday! Yeah, we didn't even bring up the karaoke. We really didn't even talk about oh, the oh, karaoke. Yeah, like this movie has no song? conception of how karaoke is done. I'm just gonna no. say that. right for them. Like, karaoke is literally like the rolling event that happens throughout a weekend. Like that's not yeah. how karaoke is done. You don't wander around the house with like your karaoke machine under your arm. Like, you don't do also, Leo what, Sayer what to memorialize your lyrics. dead wife. Wait, like one of you at a time, because I want to hear what both of you are saying about this. You go first, Chris. I said you don't do Leo Sayer songs to memorialize your <laughs> dead wife. Jesus. And, and also, what karaoke machine has lyrics attached to the songs? So, like, they're singing along with with lyrics that are already on these songs. That's not how karaoke works. Oh, fully. Like, works. back in the 90s of, like, home karaoke machines, and you would have a cassette for it, you would, like, unfold the booklet, and it would have all the lyrics. It's so crazy. Oh, yeah. Wild. <laughs> Guys, the karaoke place I tend to go to here in New York City just now got uh, shallow, and look what I found. So I'm just <laughs> saying it right now. This is happening. I don't so know. do you think that place is going to win an Academy Award yes. for Best Original Song? <laughs> it's yeah. it's going to be Best Performance of an Original Song by yes. Joe Reed. Joe Reed. <laughs> <laughs> and someone. Anyway. I just want the Oscar ceremony to begin with a pre-taped segment of Lady Gaga slowly walking onto an empty Dolby stage and like looking out into the theater and like <laughs> no one's there yet. And like she just leans into the microphone and says... I'm alone in my house. <laughs> that instead of a host is all we need. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Who needs a host when we can just literally the entire Oscars should start with them doing cello. Like that's how yeah. like a cold open curtains the up. The opening that was the Justin Timberlake song that we all kind of eye rolled at, but like also that was fun. Loved, was great. It was fun. That's how you open on Oscars. It should be a crowd friendly presentation this is why all right this is going to sidetrack us for like half a second but i'm so (laughs) sick of this idea that the oscar host has to be somebody who punches a hole in the egos of blah 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 like it's the fucking oscars like we're well past the point of pretending that we want to punch a hole in the egos of these people like though to sidetrack us for another two seconds bradley cooper has already like that when that headline was going around that bradley cooper already had something in mind and planned for the shallow performance and like my joke to everyone was full penetration flames <laughs> Cirque du Soleil all right all right take us home, avatar yeah. all right 
And that's our episode. If you want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr if it still exists, if we haven't been flagged as uh, explicit. Oscar porn. Um, yeah, this had Oscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Gavin, our lovely guest, thank you again for coming here. Please tell our listeners where they can find you and your stuff. Uh, you can listen to me bi-weekly on my podcast, The Mixed Reviews, with my co-host, uh, Louis Rendon. Uh, we, it's a podcast where we talk films, where we take an actor, director, or subject, and we sort of dissect it, give you a full history, and talk about what we like and we don't like about it. Um, also, you've maybe seen my stuff. I've, I've been editing around this year, doing a lot of commercials, and uh, I also got a chance to work on Joe Para Talks With You, which is an adult swim show, Yay. which has now yeah. been showing up on a lot of year-end lists, and that makes me really happy and excited. Vulture named it one of the best new comedy shows of the year. Um, I just did watched- it all yourself, Gavin. It was all I just you. watched the one where he does the church announcements that uh, oh has been showing up on a lot of lists. It's really um, good. I have some stories that I can't share publicly that I'll tell you about that. He's so <laughs> oh, wonderfully <laughs> Buffalo that like I cannot help but just absolutely love him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and we both have that upstate connection because I went to school out near Buffalo. Yeah. Too, so like it. Yeah, you you definitely feel it. Um, they said at the premiere they sat me next to his parents, oh. and let me tell you, they are the most delightful people uh, in the world. That's so nice. Um, anyway, but uh, but if you want to, and then if you want to see my insane ramblings or witticisms, if you will, I guess uh, you can find me on Twitter at at friendless mean, which is how I'm going to die someday. <laughs> and yeah, that's and that's about it. And other than that, I'm you know I'll see you guys around. Yay, yay, Joe. Also tell our listeners where they can find you and your stuff. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed, read is spelled R-E-I-D. I am at Letterboxd, Joe Reed, read is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Twitter at Chris v. File, that's F-E-I-L. I'm also on Letterboxd at Chris v. File, where you can find our running this head Oscar buzz list that has IMDb game stats and direct links to episodes. You can also find me at The Film Experience, that's thefilmexperience.net. I write about soundtracks, and I will be writing about the Oscar season and year-end stuff as well. Um, We would also like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, and Dave Gonzalez, and our wonderful guest, Gavin Mevius, for the technical guidance they provide us. Please remember to... Oh, shucks. Um, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Send us along to your friends as well. A five-star review, though, would be super appreciated and help us become more visible on iTunes to Peter Gallagher and everyone else at this beach house. Uh, But that's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so loud.